Hi, everyone. Seth Abramovich here, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And Chip Pope, senior reader at The Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> I love reading the stuff in The Hollywood Reporter. You need your senior reading glasses. <laughs> I do. I got senior readers that I got from Rite Aid. But we're happy to say uh, everything's going great here. Chip is recovering nicely from his detached retina. And um, we have an exciting thing lined up for you today. We're sure there must be some Pixar movie that means something to you, if not many. And uh, we knew eventually we had to do something Pixar. It's state-of-the-art popular storytelling. But it's also completely, uh, you know, out-of-the-box thinking. I don't know. I guess that's a cliche. But but it is. It's true, though. They're doing their own thing up there in San Francisco. So we knew we wanted to do that. Little did we know we were going to net the big fish. Nemo? <laughs> well, the, the man Dory? who birthed ne Nemo. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, we'll be right back on It Happened in Hollywood. Yeah, so as we teased, uh, we wanted to do a Pixar episode, and my favorite Pixar movie by far is Wall-E. Beautiful film. And so we took a shot, and we asked if the director writer of Wall-E, Andrew Stanton, the like <laughs> one of the founders of Pixar, would would do our show, and he said yes. That's so crazy. I, I yeah, I was in in serious shock that he said yes. He doesn't do many interviews, but he did. So. You're in for a treat. The guy is, I don't know, what could you say? There's something so fundamental. I don't know. I, I just, he reached out and touched my heart to yes. sound corny for a second. No, he's like, it definitely, you get that feeling. He's just one of the, the good guys. Yeah. And all that comes through in his films. You've seen Toy Story, Finding Nemo, <sighs> the sequel to Finding Nemo, Finding Dory. He is the second animator hired at Pixar uh, after John Lasseter. But you know what? It really is a group effort over there. So even if he doesn't get like the it is, actual you credit, you know, you he, think of, he's, he's contributing to all the Pixar movies. Yeah. You know, they're a think tank. But, you know, he's he's a great. He's a giant. He's like, you know, Walt Disney adjacent in, in terms of the influence he's had over popular culture and animation. So, okay, enough of <laughs> building up Andrew Stanton. I think we made the point. This is a big deal. Yeah. All right, so let's go back in time a bit to 2008. This is an interesting period in American mm -hmm. history. Basically, the economy completely collapses. Oh, my gosh. All these huge banks go under. People are losing hope. And then Wally dropped into theaters in June of 2008. Now, what do you remember of, of Wally? That the first 15, 20 minutes are virtually kind of, uh, well, it's dialogueless. Yeah. So like a uh, I just remember film. that being very arresting. Yeah. And also, you know, for a Disney film, it was, you know, set on this bleak garbage planet. Earth. Earth. Which was <laughs> No, what? no. Well, is it? Wait, what is Earth? Yeah, it's Earth. I meant Earth right now. But, right. Oh, well, okay. that's kind of like Earth in the future. What's so intense about the movie is like you're kind of looking at what's what's going to happen to our home and what's going to happen to us. Because then in the second half, they go up in space and... Humans have evolved into these blobs that never look up from their screens, which mm -hmm. 
pretty much anticipated uh, where we are now. So it's right on it's, a space cruise. It's basically a, a very bleak vision for a Disney movie, and yet within it is this beautiful love story between two robots, and it it made a huge impression on me. I just was very taken by this movie, and specifically by Wally. If you don't fall in love with Wally, there is something wrong with your heart. Yeah, and there's just something beautiful about the movie that it's like a like a like a foreign film robot movie. <laughs> Anyway, we cover all these things with with Andrew. We cover how it has this bleak but prescient vision of where things are heading with the environment and with technology and, uh, you know, the the more charming silent film aspects or foreign film aspects of it. But why don't we start just with where he was in his career when Wally, as a notion, first popped into his head. Right after we finished Toy Story, so we're talking 95, we didn't we were so focused on trying to finish a movie we didn't really think about what if this succeeds and we'll have to keep going and we'll have to keep people employed that we've hired and um so we were in a mad scramble to come up with what we would do next and a bug's life of course is what ultimately came to mind first but in our sort of brainstorming it's over the sort of now infamous lunch we we sort of blurted out uh, what if there was a robot and it was the last robot on Earth and it just kept going, doing its job because it didn't know that it could stop. That it, And it was such a lonely, futile character. <laughs> I was like immediately attracted to it and I couldn't stop thinking about it. But then we had to be so all hands on deck to, as a as just a, the entire company to get the next several films working and out the door that it it really took until middle of uh, working on Nemo. So you're talking, gosh, that would have been 99. So yeah, like four or five years later, I'm trying to do rewrites on uh, Nemo and I'm and uh, everybody's waiting, sort of the equivalent of everybody's waiting on set. And I, I'm such a procrastinator when I write and uh, I couldn't stop uh, thinking about this little robot suddenly. And I ended up writing the first act to what you now know as Wally when I should have been rewriting the fixes on Nemo. And uh, I told myself that that was productive procrastination. I was I was not really wasting time. I love that, you know, his way to procrastinate is just to, you know, toss off the first act of Wally. <laughs> <laughs> right. Puts most people to shame, but yeah. Can I say though when you're a writer that's a thing that happens too. I'm sure that's happened to you before you're working on something and then suddenly there's this shiny new idea and you're like, "Oh, this is better." <laughs> yeah. You know, cuz you've been sitting with the other thing for a long time. Exactly. So, you know, it's a very very common. Okay, so he has the he has the first act outlined or I don't know how much of work he did on it, but he he sees this movie. And he brings it to, and this is like, it's going to be like all-stars, like these names. It's like all the, the heroes of Pixar. So he, he brings it to his, his co-worker, Pete Docter, who, of course, went on to do Up and mm -hmm. Inside Out. And yeah. uh, you've seen them at wow. many Academy Awards um, accepting trophies. But um, he, he went over to Pete and said, hey, Pete, what, what do you think about this idea? And then I pitched it to Pete Doctor because he was the one that had thought he might turn it into a movie way back earlier in the 90s and couldn't crack it. And then he ended up cracking this idea about monsters under your bed, which we all know about now. Uh -huh. And uh, so I said, Pete, would you mind if I ran with this? And he goes, no. And I go, well, I can't find any of the development work you did on it, any of the drawings. And he goes, oh, they're in a shoebox under my bed. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, that's how how fancy we are up here. <laughs> and... Um, 
he went and, and looked at it, and the next morning he called me and said, you know what, I, I fell in love with it again. I'd like to do it. And I said, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> I said, well, do you mind if I kind of produce it with you? Because I just would love to see it made. I don't really have to have ownership of it or anything. I just really want to, you know, we're enough of a, of a band up here that we're like, fine, can I just be a part of it? And uh, he said, sure. And then he developed it for a while and ran with the first act I had and still couldn't crack it. And and John basically just decided that it, 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 he had been so burned by Ants and A Bug's Life being competition, and he knew his good friend Chris Wedge was going to come out with this movie called Robots, that he didn't want to do the same to anybody else. And uh, so he kind of just killed it. And now you got to jump a couple years later, and I'm finishing Nemo. It's huge. Nobody saw that coming. I get an Oscar, and I realize nobody can say no to me. <laughs> and uh, and I went, you know what? I'd like to do that little movie about the robot that nobody will allow us to do. So that's an interesting little tidbit in there, uh, which was he's mentioned John. So that's John Lasseter, the head of Pixar, mm -hmm. was annoyed that the movie Ants came out, which was, I think, DreamWorks. Right, um, right. A computer animated thing with, with Woody Allen playing an ant. Canceled. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it came out at the same time as A Bug's Life. Now, of course, no one really remembers ants, but A Bug's Life is a, a more minor classic in the Pixar canon. But you could see he was annoyed, and so he didn't want to make a robot movie. Right. But then we have this idea of capital, and once you win an Oscar, no one could say no to you. That reminded me of Friedkin when he won for The French Connection, and no one could say no to him. Right. Um, Give you the keys to the candy store. Yeah, exactly. He, he so didn't that's... say that specifically. <laughs> so Pete Doctor did some drawings, but they weren't exactly of the Wally that we see in the movie. That kind of came as an inspiration to Andrew Stanton. Yeah, at a very unlikely location. That was an epiphany. I was at a baseball game with my editor on Nemo, and I borrowed his binoculars and then I missed an entire inning just looking at the binoculars and started to make them sort of happy and mad and sad. And I remember doing that as a kid with my dad's binoculars. And I suddenly realized how you could get all this emotion out of a simple piece of uh, technical wear beyond something like a Luxolamp. Because I knew I wanted something where you would anthropomorphize it and that it wouldn't have to literally speak a language that you had to understand. And... Um, and that just cracked it open for me. And then it, 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 that's pretty much what I did, put binoculars on top of a trash compactor. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I have to say there's, there were certain moments that kind of, I almost started to cry in this interview. Oh, yeah? And, yeah, I don't know why. Binoculars on top of a trash just compactor. Just something about the, that image of him sitting at a baseball game and playing with a binoculars and the character of Wally comes to life is so, I don't know, it just touches my inner child. Right. Well, sure. It's just such yeah, pure creativity. Exactly. A lot of people don't look at the world that way, but for someone who is a animator like Andrew Stanton, he sees a lot of things that way. Yeah, and as we teased before, you know, Andrew did a great job of of teaching us how animators see the world in a completely different way than regular people, and he had a great way of putting it when I asked him how he came up with all the physical humor that Wally does in the movie. That is actually the easiest of all the stuff to do because it's innate in animators to physicalize things. And I don't know if 
any of you know animators, but they tend to be a type. They tend to be people that love to observe, and they're I call them shy actors. They they just naturally have an instinct for observing characteristics of what people do and say to operate in the world, but they're shy actors. They're not going to go and repeat it themselves, but they will do it with a drawing or with a character they've created. So you can't stop us from looking at the world like that and, and thinking of that stuff. So what I all I really did is we created a playground that allowed a lot of great shy actors to come up with stuff. And I also took advantage of the fact that I wasn't dialogue dependent, so I could put a lot of animators to work really early while I was still writing the story. And, and just as long as I had the character sort of designed in a rough form, uh, some of the gags you actually see Wally do in the first act are tests that I had them do, sort of, or the, the equivalent of having actors do stuff in rehearsal and we, and we saved the stuff in rehearsal and used it because it was so good. And it helped me figure out who the character was while we were while we were writing. So it's in a weird way, it's not that dissimilar to what you do with some writers and directors do with actors if they know who their cast is early. And then the, the Star Wars of it is, is pretty literal. I mean, I, I fell in love. I was the ripe, ripe age of 11 when Star Wars came out. And all, all I ever wanted to do was revisit what it was like to be on Tatooine and, and believe it was all real, every inch of it, which you know, also reveals a lot about why I did John Carter the way I did. But it was also a sense of I loved the world of Alien, and I wanted that visceral sort of real universe to exist as well, just on, I guess, a more G-rated level. What about the decision to make his little sidekick like a literal cockroach? Not a cute cockroach, <laughs> but a literal cockroach. I know. I mean, to me, I took it as a challenge. I'm like, come on, we can make a cute cockroach <laughs> without the eyes, without the aid of little gloves. You know, come on. And, uh, and you can. You can make almost anything cute if you really try hard enough. His name is Hal. It actually is. And, uh, and it's a sort of hybrid of Hal Roach from watching too many uh, oh, yeah. Little Rascal cartoons and a, and a hybrid of Hal the computer. So that was, that's very conscious. Wow, I didn't know that. Did you know that one? <laughs> no, I didn't. Hal makes sense. Hal the Roach. Right? But I liked his little, uh, you know, reference to the, the gloves and the top hat or whatever, you right, know, like which right. has Jiminy Cricket or Ma Mickey Mouse and any other vermin that, that Disney make cute with little outfits. But he was like, no, I'm going to make my vermin look like vermin and still be cute. Right. That's part of his genius. So why don't we explain a little bit of, you know, uh, the plot. So, so Wally is, um, he's garbage a garbage robot. He's like, right. He's the only robot on the planet. He's doing his job because that's all he's ever done. Which is taking the piles of garbage and making little cubes out of them. Right. And Hal is his little cockroach sidekick. Oh, right. Of course. And uh, every night there's some kind of sandstorm or garbage storm. And so they have to go into this. Into the pod that he lives in, I he, guess. Yeah. So, abandoned spaceship perhaps <laughs> it's really quite sad it's, <laughs> it's really touching because he's so lovable part of what's so lovable about him is the way he sounds he, he goes well i wally <laughs> he says his <laughs> name like that it's a good are you sure you didn't do the voice uh, that's wah, a good impression wally and uh wow. just wally. <laughs> but um he uh, Andrew was knew that the sound of it was going to be really important. And just to go back to his Star Wars reference, he was like, we got to get the Star Wars sound guy. 
and that's why I hired Ben Burt so early on because I kept saying for about two years to my producer, like, I need it like R2-D2, like R2-D2. Like, I always inferred what he was trying to say. Uh, and he said, well, why don't we just get the guy that did R2-D2? And I was like, I didn't know we could do that. And he's like, yeah. So we, <laughs> we called Ben Burt and thank God bless him. He said yes because I think in my mind it's the second greatest robot voice he's ever done <laughs> out of the two. No, I think he's done more. So, yes, there's some things that you should know about Ben Burt. He was the voice of R2-D2. He came up with the sounds for the lightsaber in Star Wars. He came up with the breathing for Darth Vader. So he's obviously legendary, and there's a reason that uh, Andrew Stanton would want to have him on Wally, where not only was he the voice of Wally, he's also the sound editor on the entire movie. But can he do this? Wally. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, he <laughs> and he did. <laughs> Moving right along. So one of the things I think is cool about Andrew is that he's a screenwriter on top of everything. He wrote this movie. Right. And so it was cool to talk shop with him in that sense as a screenwriter. And uh, it was fun to hear him talk about how he taught himself to be a screenwriter. Here he is talking about that. I was going to school, uh, not literally, but like putting myself through screenwriting school all through those 10 years. I was constantly looking for scripts that were uh, what I would call reader's scripts, the scripts that got greenlit. You know, I, I didn't want to read the shooting script. I didn't want to read the, trans, the transcribed script post-release of the movie. I wanted to read the script that made an executive with no imaginary skills go, God, we got to make that. And... And I started to collect all these scripts of some of my favorite movies, no matter how old they might be. And I started to really understand the power of how uh, formatting and the right verb and the and, and structure of just how well things are described on the page can do that. And I came across Walter Hill's version of Alien. And I don't know if you have ever seen that script. But he writes very sparse. They're almost like haikus, and they're, and they're about anywhere from three to six lines that are very short, left justified. And you start to get this rhythm like music when you read it. And the dialogue just almost just naturally becomes second banana to the description. And that's usually the opposite. Usually a lot of people just read a script and they just read the dialogue and then they kind of maybe catch the descriptions. His do exactly the opposite. And it puts you in a, in a pace that is, mimics exactly what it'll feel like when it's done. And it inspired me so much, I cribbed it. I stole it and <laughs> I used exactly that format on the Wally script. And so... So much of that tone and pacing and rhythm and where your attention is, I did the hard work and tried to do it on the page first. I didn't find everything that way, but I certainly got a good running start that way. Good writers borrow and great writers steal. That's, that's <laughs> the last you've heard that before, right, Seth? Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to ask uh, sort of about, you know, it felt like there was this environmental message baked into this movie. It seems like the kind of movie Greta Thunberg would have on speed dial. Uh-huh. But <laughs> Can um, you have a movie on speed dial? <laughs> I don't know. Like, Hello, it's Wally. <laughs> it Press number four. It sounded good. But here's uh, Andrew explaining that the message was actually a, a function of his plot's needs. I hate being preached to, and I assume other people do too in a movie, and I and I and I 
that's the last thing I wanted to do. So I went there very reluctantly, and it ended up being out of pure necessity to my main drive, which was I just wanted to believe in the authenticity of why Wally was alone. All I was really trying to do was tell the most star-crossed lover's story I could and just tell a simple little love story about a robot that had more humanity than humans did at that point. And so I, it, it was really logic at the time, so we're talking 2005 and six, that led me to any of the science and environmental and sociological choices that I did. Uh, I, I just went with kind of what was happening around me. Um, we were having anywhere from like two to a dozen boxes from Amazon show up at my doorstep like every other day, it seemed like, with people ordering from my family, including myself. And I just started to think like, where does all this shit go? And and, uh, and then the iPhone came out in 06, two years before the movie came out. And... I don't, I'm, I, again, I don't like being right, but I remember I was, I was literally one of the first people to get the iPhone uh, before it was brought out to the world uh, officially because Steve was our boss. And so I was in this lucky circle of people that had an iPhone show up at our, our door about a couple days before it was released and started playing with it and was kind of crazily going, why is this feeling familiar? This is basically the future, and there should be nothing about this that's familiar. And it was the addictive quality of it. I used to be a smoker when I was in college, and I remember that, and that was way before there was a computer or anything else to distract you with. And so you would use a cigarette to just sort of pass the time and not be bored. And I remembered, like, so we all know about it now, the sort of dopamine fix you get for looking at the iPhone. But I remember then going wow, this could get really out of hand fast. This is like a nicotine hit. And um, that's what made me come up with the distraction of humanity through technology and the screens and everybody being right next to each other. And so the whole thing of the the planet going to waste literally came from just creating a the uh, logic of creating a large dump. But again, all of it was in service to how can I make you be the most invested in how lonely this guy is. So basically, Amazon and Apple were your two central inspirations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These behemoths that only got bigger since and, then. And I have to ask, what did Steve Jobs think about this movie? Oh, well, you know, he had to go for it. He loved it. And the irony was not lost on him. <laughs> I think I, I didn't get to be inside his head. I think he was crossing his fingers that my my slightly pessimistic view would be incorrect and in that it would stay a fairy tale. But he was a big fan of, of the movie. He, um, and he was a harsh critic. There was a, it took me a long time to get the second half of it right. And uh, <laughs> there was a period of time, and this is true of all our films, they, they, bear, they rarely work all the way through for most of their four-year existence. And uh, I was at one of those lows where the front half, he said, we were in a meeting, it's like, the front half's genius, the second half's crap. <laughs> I don't think he used that exact word, but that was the sentiment. <laughs> and that hurt, but he was, he was uh, quick to find me and, and, uh, and kind of apologize and say, like, look, it, I just think you're, you're on such a good path. Keep going and don't, and don't give in, you know, to your instincts. Well, I, I imagine it's hard enough to get um, studio notes from a regular executive, but getting your notes from Steve Jobs 
the yeah. most intimidating figure in the history of anything <laughs> exactly um, has to be a, a pretty difficult right don't give in to your instincts that's the other weird thing it's got like, you're on the right path but also not uh, think different but not too different yeah <laughs> another interesting thing he mentioned was that johnny ive the designer of everything you associate with apple he came in to sort of give his opinions on specifically on the creation of eve right which is the very slick uh, sleek I- yeah sleek ipod looking uh, robot that wally falls in love with as opposed and, to Wally, the trash compactor with binoculars <laughs> on his head. I know, and I wish, <laughs> I wish my iPhone looked more like Wally than Eve. But it, <laughs> um, Johnny, I've loved Eve. He said there was nothing I would do to change it, and they were over the moon. They couldn't. They were all geeking out over that. Eve. 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 Right, and there's a lot of disparate elements in this movie that you wouldn't expect, like the, that clip of Hello Dolly. What's what's the song called? It's called Put On Your Sunday Clothes, I think. Something like that. Put on your Sunday best? Put on your Sunday or clothes. Put on oh, okay. your Sunday clothes. I'm not, I can't, I, you know, I know a lot about musicals. Uh-huh. I have to say Hello, Dolly is a big hole in my knowledge of musicals. Uh-huh. I've never seen it. I've never even seen the Barbra Streisand version. But you've seen it in Wally. So but you, I saw this seen, scene in Wally. You've seen that bit it, over and over again. It is a catchy song. It starts the whole movie. Right. Remember, it goes like this. Put on your Sunday clothes, there's lots of world out there. Get out the brilliant teen and dime cigars. We're gonna find adventure in the evening air. Girls in white in a perfume night with the lights are bright as the stars. But it is pretty random. And what's interesting is Andrew Stanton, when he went to high school... Before he even realized he wanted to be an animator, he w- he thought he might want to be an actor. He was really into musical theater, and he was in Guys and Dolls, and uh, he was in a production of Hello Wa- Dolly. It's, Hello Wally. Hello Wally. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, makes sense. But uh, it's interesting how those early formative interests can somehow leave a lasting effect on uh, pop culture history. You know what's funny? Nemo had come out. It was in competition through a lot of awards with Triplets of Belleville, which I was a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. And I was already in early development on Wally at that point, like really early, like privately just coming up with stuff and maybe talking only to a few people. And I always knew I wanted to open on space. And I wanted, and at the time, I wanted to open with a couple. I had, I had two competing French swing songs from the 40s that I was thinking of. It just felt cool, this old, old, old swing, turn-of-the-century other language song against the stars. It was just a visceral thing. And then I just was watching Triplets of Belleville so many times, and it was, it just felt like, oh, it's just going to look like I'm cribbing from them. You know, you can kind of get caught up in the time and think that you don't want to look like you're a copycat. And um, and I'm kind of glad that that happened because it made me search farther. And, and and I was in no rush. I could basically come up with that idea in post, so I knew I had four years. But not long after, I had been sort of scrolling through my iPod. Just, I put it on shuffle a lot, and I just sort of use it like my radio, just to, you know, at least at the time, just to sort of see what comes at me. And uh, I had Hello Dolly on there because I have just enough Broadway show tunes of things I either like or things that I actually were was in when I was in school. 
and I was in Hello Nolly, and up came that song. And it just, the minute I heard out there, it just kind of worked. And I kept listening to it and thinking about it. And I remember asking my wife, I said, honey, I think I have the weirdest idea I've ever had, but I can't drop it. And so we went for it. That's got a lot of interesting stories behind it, that song, because we'd never had to ask for the rights to something that pre-existed. And we, of course, Disney got stopped right away by the Fox lawyers to get the song. And it just turned out that our CFO at the time, a guy named Simon Bax, had been a high up uh, CFO at Fox prior and still knew whoever was running it at the time and um, was able to kind of do a runaround and call him directly and say, look it, this thing's just sitting in your vaults. You know, we can all benefit a little bit if you just <laughs> let us have the rights to it. And, uh, and that's how we, we got it. And that's the rest is history. And then the crazy thing is, is that when that film came out, the actor that sang that in the movie, Michael Crawford, who everybody then knew to become the fan oh. of the opera, contacts me and asks if we can have dinner. And he's just blown away by the congruity of using that song and suddenly having it out there in this movie. And he told me that when he was recording that, they were on the MGM lot, they were recording it with an orchestra on that soundstage where we actually did the score for Wally. And Gene Kelly was the director, and um, he couldn't get the singing right at the beginning of the song. And finally, Gene Kelly had to go to him into his, his sound booth and say, because he was in his early 20s at the time, he said, kid, this is bigger than just kissing a girl. This is bigger than going to the city. This is the whole world. It's the whole universe. Think of the stars. And so he did when he hit it, and that's the take they used. Wow. So he said it really blew his mind to see the stars and hear that, that song of him singing because he knew that's what he was envisioning. You know, we always talk about how, how things come full circle. And, you know, I loved how, like, they had to go through all these hoops to get Fox to say yes to allowing their song to be in a Disney movie. And now Fox has been completely subsumed by Disney and yeah. it makes no difference. It's the same company and Fox doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so 21st century Fox. So speaking of the Disney-Fox merger, you know, we all know now Bob Iger is the head of Disney and basically the emperor of the universe, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> at least where entertainment comes. He is a very powerful man and uh, has done a very good job in steering Disney to its global domination. And he was new on the job at this point. And it's really kind of interesting to see, you know, he, he went to visit the Pixar campus up in uh, Northern California, you know, he was a little taken aback by, by how differently they did things up there. But uh, to his credit, he also recognized the value of it. Bob Iger by then had taken over. He had seen an early pass of it. And, you know, by that time, he's like, wow, they've got, <laughs> I think it's even in his book that just came out. Like, but he was like, he walked away. He came up for a day to see all the things we were working on. on and he walks out going, they got a rat in a kitchen. They got they got a trash robot uh, on an apocalyptic planet. They've got a septuagenarian with a Korean Boy Scout going up in a house full of balloons. Like, like he's just like he just said, uh, it's this. You know, it just kind of overwhelmed him with how outside of the box we thought. 
and to his credit, it, it, it did the exact opposite. It didn't scare him. It made him go, I think they're the people that are leading the dance and we should be following them. Mm. And that's how we felt. We felt like we were free of the shackles of whatever the Disney label meant. We Somewhere between Incredibles and Nemo, we our brand became this brand of trust that it would be something surprising and not what you expect, but it'll be worth your time. And that's all we ever wanted was to get to that place so that it would, in, a, in the best of all senses, give us license to keep pushing the barriers. And that's kind of what happened. So they, it didn't, if it, if it scared people, like I said, it kept, they kept it to themselves. And, and I, I also did something that I don't usually do, which was I thought we could debate for – we basically – you know, I, I knew these guys really well. And we had debated for a year or more on Toy Story about whether Buzz Lightyear should go still when somebody comes in the room or not because of his delusion. And we basically wasted a year because we realized we're asking a question that nobody will ask if we if we tell the story right. <laughs> and um, so I knew we could waste years debating whether you would watch a movie about a robot that didn't speak our language. And so what I did is on the three to six months that I was supposed to take off after Nemo, I stayed at the company and hid away with a couple storyboard artists and an editor, and I put up a rough version of the entire first act of the movie and knew that if you just, if I could convince myself I could sit and watch this, then all debate would go out the window because you'd just be caught up in the movie. I would just prove my thesis. And that's what happened. And so I sort of circumvented all that worry because that kind of stuff, when you list it like you do, you're victim to how, to everybody's imagination or lack of to sell your idea. And that's a really precarious place to be if you're trying to invent a new color. What you, I'd rather be is in a position where I've already given you an example and, and corralled it. Again, this is like a drug to me, just like finding <laughs> out how Pixar works. Right. Um, I love this idea that they could, for a solid year, debate whether or not Buzz Lightyear should go still go still not. when people come into the room right i mean you can imagine How these like that? That? nerdy <laughs> philosophical debates going on at the pixar offices that really tickled me so anyway we had him here and because this is the stuff i was most interested in i i kept pressing him i, I asked him to pull the curtain away and tell us a bit more about how things work at pixar and he was very forthcoming there's the overall philosophy which is basically we invest in the people not the process we've just the process was sort of discovered along the way for the people that we invested in. We were, there was sort of an original band on uh, that that uh, everybody understands. There's just this elusive chemistry that can just sort of happen with a garage band, and you you don't like to uh, analyze it too hard, or else it may lose its magic. And we had that with the original group that made the first movie. And then just out of complete necessity financially, we had to expand. And we, I remember us having this conversation like, wow, you're, you're basically asking the Beatles to just break up and make solo albums so that we can survive financially. But like the only reason we made this movie any good is because we were together. So we kind of came up with this sort of simplistic idea that we could still branch off each individually, maybe direct other films and then meet 
as the same group that we always were to help oversee each other's projects, just as a sort of like doctors advising another doctor in the operating room. But meet as peers, not as a tribunal, not as judges. And that's how it worked for a very long time. We were just small enough. We were only about 100 to 200 people, and we grew to about 600 people when we moved into our studio after the first 10 years. And, it, we, and we made that work. So sort of the same gestalt, the same sort of creative spark that we seemed to conjure up when we all got together could be manifested whenever we needed it to when, when we had a problem or when we just needed some objectivity. And the practical side of that is we basically built a big building and then invested in individual filmmakers or people that we thought could become great individual filmmakers, almost like a, a Fox Searchlight or a Miramax or something. And we just, and then we, they went off and made, made their crews like an independent feature. And we just have these built-in check-ins where they screen for us where they're at about every four to five months. And the thing that's different about us and just animation in general is that we don't write a script and then make it. We basically hound on an idea until we have somewhat of a treatment, and then we make it. So it's really nerve-wracking, because imagine if you said to a, a screenwriter, go off and... Um, start writing now that we love this idea and we've sold it to the studio. But we're going to have the entire crew that is eventually going to shoot it sort of over your shoulders while you type. <laughs> and that's pretty much how we work. So it can be super stressful because you – and what we learned and on, on, a, on a bumpy way over that time was to embrace the failure. So the thing, the only thing I think that makes us really unique, because it's not a fun factory here, but it's a safe place. It's a safe place to fail. We expect you to fail. We expect you to, to be encouraged to take risks and try things that you wouldn't normally be brave enough to do otherwise, because that's always where we had historically solved certain problems or found the gold to, to mine. And um, we found that there's a you can create a sort of disciplined method of of failing as you move forward and slowly evolve. The closest thing I can probably equate it to is workshopping a play. If anybody's ever been involved in theater, the playwright has all the power, uh, or at least the authority, and they write something, and then they put it up on its with tables and chairs at some point on a stage with some actors, and with fully expecting after they workshop it, they're going to go back and fix what they don't like. We basically do that, but with a lot of expensive equipment and a lot more people and a lot more overhead. <laughs> so we're not cheap. All right, there you have it. Uh, another <laughs> glimpse inside uh, the workings of the mysterious hit factory that is Pixar. And I found it really fascinating that he says that they give them so much freedom to fail when pretty much all they've turned out is successes. Well, success buys you more capital. Capital allows you to fail. But it's still insane to me, you know, the amount of technical work just hard labor that has to go into one of those movies yeah you know but you, the, you, in the quality level though is very uniform and consistent exactly well we've gotten a little off track we've gotten into the uh under the hood so to speak haha <laughs> cars land visited today um <laughs> of the pixar uh machinery but um let's get back into the the timeline of wally so 
for a certain number of years, they've been workshopping and uh, tinkering and uh, testing, and uh, they finally have something that they can show an audience. And that came around 2007, about a year before it came out. Here's how the first test screenings went. I don't have a recollection of anything earlier than the audience preview we had in November of 2007, which put us about six to eight months away from having to have it in the can. And um, I would think it was up in Portland. And it didn't go well with the... We have a, two screenings usually. We have a family screening, and then after that we have a, an adults or old people without kids screening. <laughs> and the family screening, it kind of had some rocky notes in it, and the scores weren't as great as the other ones. It, it did fine. All our, you know, it, it didn't do bad. It just, I think, um, it wasn't Nemo numbers if you're, if you're going to talk in that parlance. And the families, the, the, the adult screening, it went through the roof. So I, it went from hell to heaven that night, I remember. <laughs> and what, a big fix came out of it, probably one of our bigger fixes. I had really screwed up on the end of the second act. I had Eve be hurt and Wally come to her rescue in the in the dump of the uh, Axiom starship and rescue her. And it suddenly hit us that we were telling a story about a character that changed everybody else for being consistent, sort of like being there. <laughs> right. And it should have been Wally that was finally incapacitated and was the beneficiary of everybody he had touched. And we realized we would have to basically reanimate and re-render six minutes of the movie to fix that problem. And once we said it out loud, though, we all knew that was the answer. And that's another reason I love this place is that we respect the 11th hour epiphany and we try really hard to budget so that we can have those 11th hour epiphanies and do something about it. It's like building, it's like reshoots are always built into what we do. So we fixed it from there. But after that, I remember it being fine, it being fine after that. I don't remember the controversy. I remember a few publications about, especially from the right, about the ecological thing. But I, uh, I don't remember any other sort of – I just remember being so pleased with uh, – that people got it and people were – uh, swept away by it. And um, it's the film that anybody I work with on, I do a lot of TV now, and when I'm on set, almost anybody that wants to rave about something I'm associated with, they, they go to Wally. -E, all the people that are in the movie business. It's, I, I think I think it's, it's built off of so much love of, of cinema from the past. I mean, we studied every Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton film, literally watched every one of the things that they had done, and walked away humbled that wow, there was almost no subject, no matter how complex, that wasn't tackled in the silent era. You really can, if you think smart enough, get anything across. And so it challenged us to never sort of cave. So that's interesting to think of them doing the test screenings and it doesn't go so well and they realize they have to change something at the 11th hour, which, you know, always happens with live action movies, but you don't think about as much happening with animated films. So. Not even Pixar is immune to the right. vagaries and the fickle tastes of test screening audiences. Right, right. <laughs> and it's just a lot more work for them to fix it. Exactly. So they have their epiphanies and do some changes and the movie comes out. It's still a huge success. It's a huge uh, critical success and a uh, box office success, but not quite the success of finding 
Nemo, Wally made two hundred and twenty four million at the box office, mm-hmm. and Nemo made something like three eighty. Wow! So, but still, two twenty four is nothing to scoff at. Nothing to scoff at, and he wins his second Oscar. But we had him here, and I had to, being a journalist, I had to ask, uh, you know, John Lasseter, head of Pixar, uh, left under very unfortunate circumstances. What exactly happened has still never become public, but there was employees saying that he made them feel uncomfortable and it led to his exit. No, we didn't want to get too deep into it, but obviously they were very close. They were the first two animators at Pixar, and we had to ask, you know, how, how it felt to... Um, to lose his uh, creative partner like that and the leader. There's nothing nice about it, and it's bittersweet. It's painful. It's um, it's sad. And at the same time, uh, what's grown out of it is a rising of the next generation that was kind of overdue to happen. And that's been really exciting to see. I mean, I literally feel like I'm becoming a little bit more of a dinosaur with each day. And my job more and more is to pass on the knowledge that was either never really said and was just sort of this invisible language we had in our core group or to codify our process and stuff. And, and the, you know, you, you, I think the most concern is that and we, I think this concern existed long before this happened with John, was that the legacy of this place would go beyond us. And we didn't have anybody to... The only example that we had that existed was Disney, and, and, it, and it clearly slumped for two decades after his death. And we'd love to avoid that, not to impress anybody, because we won't be around to impress anybody, but just to know that like the quality that you expect from that name Pixar will can can be reinvented, rediscovered and evolve in out of the new names that'll come up and then it, and and that's part of I think what I was talking about earlier about that hopefully it doesn't mean anything too specific other than it's going to be good. It's going to be good, it's going to surprise you and it's going to uh, be worth your time. And that has a lot of different ways to be defined. And I really think we've picked a winning new generation and, uh, and uh, hope that I live long enough to see the benefits of that. So that's a nice sentiment, you know, just that he's, they're building a legacy that will, you know, span generations and, you know, he, his hopes for them. Yeah, it's a beautiful sentiment. And it's already reaping dividends in um, some of the new generation stuff that's come out. I loved the movie Coco. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's a really that's a really good one, and unique for you know Pixar up to that point too. A lot more inclusive and that's right. It had the uh, you know Mexican culture, and I went to San Miguel de Allende, and um, which I I thought was the the uh, um, the village the of... village. Wow, it was. That's cool. Then 2019, Toy Story 4 came out. A lot of people thought, oh, gee, Toy Story 3 seemed like the natural end to the story. But Toy Story 4 was was really good and got mm-hmm. really great reviews. And then next up, they have Onward, which is the um, fantasy uh, ogre troll duo in a van. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure what to expect from that. Uh, but it comes out in March. I think it's premiering at the Berlin Film Festival. Pixar and, is going to be okay, I think, he, is the upshot. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah you yeah. know, they're they're doing great. 
And it's probably, you know, a lot of it has to do with his philosophy and how he sees the world and what he's doing, you know, the themes and values that he has. Well put, Chip. And so we'll leave you with him sort of explaining his own philosophy on the movies that he makes. I mean, I'd like to believe that on my best day, they're a reflection of my values, but they're more, I guess, a snapshot. Each of them are a snapshot of what you'd, you're, you're, you believe in and that you're either hopefully living or that you're aspiring to be. But I really, I really want to respect the audience that they can, they can tell when you're not being authentic with, with the values of something. I, I, I'd like to think I have that kind of discernment when I'm hearing my favorite artists on an album or, or even looking at a painting or watching a movie that you can just tell when something is sincerely uh, telegraphed versus something is being done because they just kind of have intellectualized themselves into knowing this is the right thing to say or do. And I know we've always tried very openly to rip things open to as, as it's pretty much therapy to as much as the truth of what we think we're sitting on and try to honestly express that. But a lot of it, you know, like probably any other filmmaker is you on your own couch finding something out about yourself as you make this thing. Like I said, these things are four years and uh, you definitely walk away changed from making them. And you could also walk away, change from seeing them, too, because they really do instill those great values and make you feel all warm and fuzzy about friendship and love and the things that are important to you and family. And, you know, it's, I mean, just what, what a great guy to talk to. I just want to pick up Wally and give him a hug. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> but instead, you have to go home and hug your trash compactor. Yeah. Put binoculars on top of it. Andrew Stanton, um, thank you. We we are not worthy of your esteemed company, but we will take it as always. And uh, that was really, really fascinating and, and exciting to, to hear how Pixar works. It was so great. And uh, we have a lot of great episodes still to come on that, this season. That's right. Whether you like superhero movies or you like um, comedies, um, edgy comedies, <laughs> or you like um, what else is in the pipeline? Oh, it's drama. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we have a lot of great interviews coming up as well for the rest of the season. So it's just uh, keep coming back. We know you can't believe it, but we keep topping ourselves week after week. And until then, we'll, we'll see you in Hollywood. Hollywood.